on. There we go. My friend and colleague, Melissa, uh, is in Vancouver, or where we came from. And she shared with us a story of her most recent furnishing story in her home with her family. She was sitting there one lazy Saturday morning, enjoying a warm cup of tea on their brand new couch, looking down at her phone, scrolling through her Pinterest feed. And she looked up from her phone and saw her coffee table and saying, hmm, with this new couch, this coffee table doesn't quite match. So back to the phone. I wonder if it's time for a new coffee table. She looked up again and noticed the rug under the coffee table. Hmm, new couch, new coffee table. I'm not sure if this rug is going to match. Time to look for a new rug. Ever know what that's like? I don't know about you, but in Vancouver, this is very common. Perpetual dissatisfaction when you look at your neighbors and what they have. But that's not a DC thing at all, right? Today, you know, we're going through the God Story, Our Story sermon series. We're looking at how God has revealed himself through Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelations and how that revelation of who he is culminates in this person named Jesus. As we've been looking at this story unfolding and the call of, and formation of God's people, Israel, and how God's promises unfold through these, this people, this scrappy group of forgetful and fickle people. In today's message, we see how the people of Israel are looking for something that will give them recognition amongst their peers. They want a king. And we're going to look at how Israel's longing for status shows up in our lives and how God meets that longing in three parts today. In this text, we see how there's a longing for status. But we also see that there's a status that's left longing. But we find at the end that status arrives. There's hope. You know, Israel by now has arrived in the promised land of Canaan amidst all these other people groups who are already living there. there now, Israel is a bunch of nomadic shepherds. They're not warriors at all. So God assures them of his rule and his care and his provision for them. He gives them guidance and land to live on. But they can't help themselves in living self-determined lives. So up to this point, God has been leading his people. He's raised up judges to help govern them. But God's people see what other people groups have. They have kings. So we want one too. Rather than following God's way to live that is meant to be an example to all these other groups, they look to the example of other groups and say, God, give us what they have. They rejected the leadership of God. They are longing for a status that other nations seem to have. So the elders come to Israel, uh, no, come to Samuel, who serves as a judge and prophet over them at this time, and he asks, they ask of him, you're old, your sons are not worthy, so now appoint for us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Give us a king to lead us. Kings in the ancient Israel, uh, ancient Near East, served as the final authority over the land and citizens while providing order and justice and places of worship for their people. For the Israelites, a king 
would be a status symbol that they could be proud of and that others around them could recognize. They've got a king, so why can't we have a king? They, want, they have a palace, so we want a palace. They've got big marching army parades, so we want military parades too. These all express Israel's longing for status. Now, we don't have kings in our age, but don't we still find ourselves longing for status too, for recognition? The president of the United States might be the closest thing that we have to a king in our day and age. The president is our chief of state, meant to be a shining example and representative of our country in the world, to reflect the highest ideals of our country. She or he is called to look out for the general welfare of the nation and its citizens, to ensure the economy and the administration are all executed efficiently, that laws are just and justly administered. The President of the United States leads the military and represents America on the world stage. Now, I'm a new to this, so if I've said anything wrong, you can correct me after. When one of our leaders makes mistakes or fails to live up to these expectations of dignity, of courage, and of honor, we find ourselves disappointed, right? Or frustrated, perhaps even ashamed at times. When one of our leaders is laughed at amongst his peers, like at a UN General Assembly, it makes us cringe a bit, doesn't it? Why, though? It's because we find our status and identity is represented by this leader. What is status in general? It's this relative social or professional recognition and standing. In our culture, we look to many things for status. It may be the kind of leader we have, but it could be other things too. It could be the zip code that we live in or the social circles that we belong to. It could be the colleges that we went to and the degrees that we've earned. It could be the kind of books that we have on our bookshelves on display for our friends to see. It's hard not to escape this longing for status. When I meet someone for the first time, I, I really try hard not to ask, so what do you do for work? Because I know deep down inside of me, I find myself comparing my, our professional careers and say, why, how do I measure up? At its core, this longing for status often shows up as a longing for an identity apart from God. For the Israelites, God intended to be king over his people, providing for them, governing them, and giving them security and freedom and going before them. But the Israelites reject him. The Israelites don't want God's rule, and God gives them the freedom to choose that. In verse 7 and 9, to 9, he says to Samuel, It's not you that they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king as they have done from their day, I brought them out of Egypt until now, this day, forsaking me and forsaking and serving other gods so that they are doing to you. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign over them will claim as his rights. The Lord grants them their request, but he warns them ahead of time of the cost of their request. A human king is going to take away their freedom. A human king is going to take away their young men to serve in the army. A human king is going to take away their young woman to serve in the palace. A king is going to tax them, and literally, they would become slaves to this king. 
Yet the Israelites don't heed this warning. They want status by having what other people have around them. In this case, it's a strong, top-down leader who will lead them into battle, someone who exudes strength and won't back down when challenged. That's someone they can rally behind. Might we all have a little bit of Israel inside of us, longing for status and recognition and respect? We too can find ourselves looking around us to see what gives others status. We look for our sense of identity and confidence apart from the living God. And that, at its core, is a form of idolatry. I have fond memories of the Mennonite camp I grew up going to many summers as a teenager. It's called Camp Squia, located a couple hours outside of Vancouver. There I learned to canoe and to build a fire, to, to go on my first overnight hike and drink water, not from a tap, but from a creek. And every year, I think, many of us, uh, I don't know about you, but when I go into a new situation, I'm looking for the best leader that I can align with. Who's the cabin leader that's the coolest? Who's the cabin leader that looks the strongest? Who's the cabin leader that leads the best cheers? I want to be part of his cabin. We long for leaders that reflect our values. We want leaders and in our workplaces or environments or in our cab- cabins to lead us in a way that makes us look good, to lead us in a way that improves the world for all, not just a few. The Israelites here are concerned for their status amongst the nations too, and they end up choosing a king kind of like a bunch of teenager campgoers. Let's see how their longing for status plays out with the kings that they choose. Israel's first choice, king number one, is named Saul. He looks good. He's tall. He's handsome. He literally stands head and shoulders above his peers. He's your typical type A leader. When he becomes king, he gets an army together. He begins beating others in battle. But he's also tremendously insecure. He worries what people will think of him. When he is first approached by Samuel to become the king of Israel, he responds with timidity. It's like, who am I? I I come from the smallest clan. No one knows us. Why would I be king? And at the coronation, their equivalent of it, when he's called to be king, he ends up not showing up. He runs and hides from the stage, kind of like an America's Got Talent contestant who's really nervous. Saul can't lead God's people and ends up being a paranoid demoniac, chasing down and getting rid of anyone in his administration that might challenge him. God rejects Saul as king over his people in favor of a young shepherd boy. Along comes king number two, David. He's humble, he's brave, and even as a young boy, he had a strong sense of what is right, fighting to protect the vulnerable. He defeats a battle-hardened Philistine giant as a teenager armed with only a sling, a few rocks, and a whole lot of faith in the living God. Not only is he a mighty warrior, though, he's an incredible songwriter writing on prayers and songs that continue to be sung even to this day. He has an incredible respect for leadership, even when the leader wants to kill him. God's favor is on him. And as a king, David shines. God makes a covenant with David that his descendant will build 
a temple for God to dwell in, and, and this descendant was going to build a kingdom that would be everlasting. Things are looking good for Israel with this king. He has all this going for him, but still he is incomplete as a leader. After some success as a king and military commander, he begins to rest on his laurels. He thinks that he is entitled to another man's wife and kills her husband, one of his most loyal generals, to cover up his offense. Though David is repentant, his indiscretions and sin catch up to him. Even more, his legacy as a father is further marred by his failure as a dad. One of David's sons, named Amnon, takes David's indiscretions even further by raping his half-sister and putting her out on her own, dishonoring her and tearing away her status and security in that culture. That half-sister's brother, Absalom, is rightly furious, and he murders Amnon, and he murders all of David's sons. And that leads us to the next king of Israel, Number three, Absalom. Well, he tries to be. He's a leader of, for the underdogs and outcasts. He has a strong sense of what is right and takes matters into his own hands. And though his dad is still king, he wins over the hearts of people by making just decisions in their favor. He's this rebel leader who campaigns on sticking up for the little guy. But behind all that, he's just proud and selfish. Most honored leaders have monuments built for them after they die, but he decides that's long to, too long to wait, so he puts a monument up for himself. He splits the kingdom of Israel and tries to stage a coup against his dad, David. But he dies after he gets his hair stuck in a tree while riding on his mule to battle. This leads us to the last notable king, king number four. He seems to be the best of them all. Solomon is David's other son, born of his adulterous relationship that David killed someone for. Solomon is wise and successful in the world's eyes. He starts off well with good intentions and wisdom. He finished the temple that his father started out to build, and it was glorious. From the surface, it looked like he was living the dream. He begins to take God, his God-given wisdom for granted. He amasses wealth and military power in Israel's the most in Israel's history, even through treaty signing with other nations. And even though God instructed him not to do that. And Solomon had another weakness, beautiful woman. His street smarts to network with other nations meant that he had to take concubines and wives. And because of his compromises, he begins to turn to other gods and idols rather than rely on the living God. He turns to his own wisdom for security rather than God. God's people asked for a leader to give them the status they thought they needed, but it came crashing down on them. And for the next 950 years, God's people would lose their land, their freedom, and their hope. They would be taken captive, dispersed from their land that God promised to them, and with no leader to lead them. When we begin to look for status and identity on our terms, we find it often disappoints us like each of Israel's leaders did for God's people. Their status seemed to improve in the short run. Victory over enemies. Wealth accumulated. Israel became respected. But it didn't last. It's a status left longing. Our status before others is of tremendous value. We can see this played out in the events of this week. 
in the investigation and oh, nomination and investigation of Brett Kavanaugh. Now, I got to admit, as a Canadian coming to America, relatively ignorant to this whole process, it's wildly fascinating and a microcosm of fighting for status. We have Kavanaugh defending his integrity and accusations made against him and undermine his appointment to one of the most significant judicial roles in the country. We saw these claims as an attack on his professional career, his family, and his own good name. He spoke impassionately because his status is on the line. So he came to the hearing with guns loaded, taking the strategy together with his supporters to plow through any barrier that would uh, threaten his status as the next Supreme Court justice. When threats threats to our status come, that's one way to respond. In stepping out with her claim against Kavanaugh, Christine Ford, too, faces an incredible threat to her status. Yes, her status as a respected academic and psychologist was now on the line, but for her, she carried this burden of an unreported assault for 35 years. And with that allegation, her intensely private pain was now put forward in public, not only before this committee, but for all the world. And millions of other women and men have experienced the same. Her testimony came across in the hearing as this authentic witness of her painful memories that were unearthed for the world to hear. Whatever the truth might be, and whichever way the decision goes, we see how people longing and striving for their status can be painful and disappointing. We see how groups who find their identity in being heard and seen and honored are fighting passionately for their status. Their status not just to be right or not just to be heard, but to be seen as humans with dignity. What can be done for our status to be free and secure and esteemed? Who can deliver us and protect us and bless us the way we long to be? From Saul to David to Absalom and Solomon, we see that no human can offer the kind of caring rule that provides true and lasting freedom and security for God's people. What human can bestow true humanity to us? Whatever status and identity we fight for and secure on our terms is fleeting. That is, until another king comes. The prophet Zechariah, which we heard read earlier, reminds the people of Israel before this true king arrives. He says, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend to sea to sea, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. With this true king, God's people experience a kind of freedom and security in our present life that lasts into our life to come. This king confers status upon his citizens, a status that lasts. And this king comes to redeem all the broken parts of our humanity. This true king to come will establish blessing and peace and flourishing in a very unexpected way. He arrives in ancient Palestine not with outstanding physical stature like Saul or courageously fighting off bears and giants like David or being the social justice warrior like Absalom or full of worldly wisdom like Solomon. His stature is of a different sort that arrives on earth as a baby in a lowly manger. He comes riding as a king on a donkey, and he dies as a criminal 
on the cross. His courage fights off a different enemy, an enemy that takes life away from his people, not only now, but beyond the grave. And the injustice he comes to overthrow is not to avenge familial dishonor, but the injustice is a barrier placed before humanity and all creation that cannot be overcome on our efforts. And his wisdom doesn't multiply riches and power, but it confounds and defeats evil power. Who is this king? His name is Jesus. Jesus is this better king who lives an impeccable life of obedience to the Father. And when faced with false accusations, he submits rather than double down with guns ablaze. Rather than subjugating his people for his own glory, he gives up his life to release his people for his Father's glory. Rather than ending his career adorned with fancy titles and golden crowns, Jesus hangs naked and bloody on a cross entitled King of the Jews. This king is not ruled by power and wealth. This king is ruled by love. Because this, king's, because this king is love. You know, when we come to know and follow this humble king, Jesus, our status changes. It changes now, but it also changes for eternity. This status cannot be lost because our king, Jesus, keeps us. And this changes everything. With this status, we become children of his father too. We become fellow advocates and laborers for justice and peace together with him. With King Jesus, we find ourselves compelled to lift up those whose status has been forgotten, those those whose status has been betrayed in this world. And even when our status in the world is challenged, we don't have to fight back the way the rest of the world does. Because this king has got our back, and he is good, and he is just, and he knows all, and he sees all, and nothing escapes his attention. Our losses, though costly, are not ultimately losses. In our broken bodies, though incredibly painful, are not ultimately broken. And our failures, however apparent they are or however hidden they are, are not ultimately devastating. This king changes everything. And this is what our King Jesus invites us to know in him. Our King Jesus invites us to join him in sharing this incredible news with those around us. So WCF, our king has come to us and he's going to come again Our status has come. Will we trust him? Will we trust this king? Or will we continue to seek status on our terms? Will we share the good news of what he's gifted to us in love and share it generously with those around us? Let's pray. Jesus, it's often really unsettling to begin seeing what our hearts truly long for and how those things that we long for apart from you don't really satisfy us. We try to earn our status on our terms or based on what around us tell us 
but really were created for you. And so as we come before you today, God, would you remind us, as you have been, of this unfailing status that you confer upon us through faith. And that this gift of your grace, a friendship with God, and a beautiful, glorious future simply can be received and can be generously shared. So as we look around us, our hearts are not overwhelmed, God, because you see all and you will make all things new once again because you are coming again and your kingdom is eternal. Help us to trust you. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.